All right, if you would make your way back to your seats. And if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we're going to be just looking at verses 1, 2, and the first part of 3 today. Starting verse 1, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we, we thank you for this time. We thank you for an opportunity to, to come together to worship God, to open your word. Um, Father, we pray, um, as we, as we often do, um, for the ministry of, of your word and of your churches in Blunt County to go forth, um, each Lord's Day. Father, we, we pray that, um, your spirit would stir, um, uh, and and move and uh, awaken and convict, God, that it would call people to um, to recognize um, the great need in their life of Jesus Christ. Um, for those who are followers of Jesus, um, the great need to to not only follow Him faithfully, Lord, but to tell others that message and take it to um, our community. Um, God, we ask that Your Spirit would go before us. Um, God, causing the the seeds that we have planted um, to to germinate and grow and put down roots and to um, God to ultimately bear fruit, um, that the Spirit would do the work uh, of the Spirit. The things that we are incapable of doing to see your kingdom grow and progress, um, God, we pray that you would do uh, in our midst. Father, we pray that you would do that among us here today. As we open our, uh, open your word, that you would shine uh, the light of the Holy Spirit on this passage, that you would shine that light on our tech, uh, the text and our hearts. Um, God, that the spirit who knows you perfectly and the spirit who knows us perfectly, God, that, that you would minister to us in this passage uh, in whatever way uh, you see fit. We thank you. God, we praise you. <clears throat> we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, so we're back in Luke, and we're starting a new chapter in Luke. And and you remember we've mentioned a couple times now that chapter 16 was kind of a mess. Um, chapter 16 was a hard chapter to work through, and there were lots of confusing texts and different things, and it was a there was a lot of significant um, uh, uh, sort of hard passages to kind of work through. 
Um, 17 is a little more straightforward in a lot of ways, especially here at the beginning. What we're going to find over the next four weeks or so is that what we see in, in chapter 17 is some, some sort of, uh, just sort of little pinpoint teaching on certain aspects of, of the Christian faith or more particularly of being disciples of Jesus, um, that are, that are, 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 are significant, um, are central to uh, the, the Christian faith and following Jesus. Okay. So for example, um, this week we are talking about the idea in general of temptation. Next week, we're going to talk about forgiveness. The next week we're going to talk about faith. And then the fourth week we're going to talk about duty. All right. So each one of those kind of have a specific significance and centrality to the way that we understand the Christian faith. And he's not, uh, what we're going to see is that Jesus is, seems to just be sort of, um, the organization of those passages is, is a little nebulous, right? We don't know if, if Luke just recorded these little, you know, proverbial kind of sayings of Jesus in one place. There doesn't seem to be anything beyond that basic idea of saying these are key elements of discipleship that really bind all these things together. They're not done in the context of parables. They're not done in the context of some sort of example, some situation that Jesus gets in and then that, that elicits a teaching. It's just Jesus sort of saying, Here's the way it works with uh, temptation. Here's the way it works with faith. Here's the way it works with uh, forgiveness and, and, and kind of going through that. And that's going to take us on for a couple of weeks. So we're going to do really short passages. Sometimes we hit big chunks. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to hit really short passages, one, two, three passages per week um, as, as we talk through this, okay? Now, I say that this is about discipleship um, in general. Um, and part of the reason we say that is is what we notice at the very beginning of that passage, okay? In verse one, it says this. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, okay? So it's a point we've made before, but it's something you always want to pay attention to when you're studying the scriptures is who is Jesus talking to or who's Paul talking to or whatever the issue is that's being addressed, who is being addressed, okay? Now, now that shouldn't change the, the, the passage drastically usually, but it does give it nuance because if Jesus is talking to the Pharisees or to the religious leaders or to the scribes or to the disciples or to all those who are following him, it will give nuance to, to the, the focus of that passage. And I, and I think it probably does here as well because he's talking to the disciples. Um, he's talking to those who are following Jesus. All right. Who are already, um, in, in a relationship with Jesus. Okay. And so it says, Jesus said to those disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. All right. Real simple kind of straightforward phrase. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. This is why I think that's important. And it's something that we should pause on for a minute. Um, because we can, as we think about sin and about temptation as Christians, we can think about it in different ways and we can think about it probably in unhelpful ways. We can be very naive when it comes to sin uh, and temptation. We can be triumphal. We can be fatalistic. Um, we can kind of be defeatist if, if, if that's distinguished between being fatalistic, maybe, um, we can think about sin and temptation in our own lives in, in unhelpful ways. So, for example, um, you might think to yourself, well, you know what? I'm a Christian now, and I've got Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all these things, and I don't, I'm not going to have to deal with sin anymore, right? Um, I'm not going to be tempted by, by those things anymore. I'm just going to walk through life, and, and I got, you know, I'm living in victory and power of Jesus, and I'm, I'm just going to, these things aren't going to be a problem. Well, that would be a naive um, 
uh, kind of idea probably to, to sin and temptation. There's, there's a triumphalist attitude. Um, again, that, um, that I have the power to defeat these things on my own somehow, or that Jesus has already defeated these things to the extent that they don't even matter anymore. Um, because we're past that. And, and, um, we, we, when we look at other places in the Bible, for example, in first Corinthians, we see these people who are kind of living almost like we're already in the new heaven and the new earth. And we don't have to worry about these things. We can live however we want to at a level because Jesus has forgiven us of all these things and it's all past us and whatever. That's not a right, um, attitude to take, um, in, in terms of, uh, of, of understanding sin and, temp- and, and temptation. We could have a defeatist attitude towards those things you know you could kind of just walk around all the time saying well you know i'm a piece of garbage and and i'm a sinner and and i'm not uh good and nothing's good and and everything i do is mingled with sin and and there's no point in even trying and kind of things like that right and you could kind of have that but that would not be the right attitude that we're supposed to have towards these either um and again something kind of similar to that a, a fatalistic um attitude where you would sort of say you know what if sin is bound to happen if it's bound to happen, then man, we might as well just let it happen because there's nothing you can do about it with it to, to try to resist it or to try to stop it or hold it back or do anything would just be, um, me acting in presumption and, and self-righteousness or something. So we're just going to, we're just going to let it happen. Okay. We can think about sin in all kinds of negative ways, wrong ways. Okay. Um, but we should be realistic in our understanding of temptation and sin. And this passage, I think is pointing towards a, a very simple idea of that. Um, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. It's, it's part of the way that we're going to experience the Christian life. You're going to come up against temptations and sometimes probably the case is that you're going to succumb to those temptations. The word that, that little (coughs) phrase that is connected together there, the thing that causes people to sin is a word that you probably recognize, sort of. Okay, because we get one of our words from it. It's the word scandala. Uh, sound like anything, right? It's it's where we get our word scandal from. Um, it means a stumbling block. It means an obstacle. It means something that causes offense. And so he's saying that. He's saying, man, the Christian life, there are going to be stumbling blocks through it. It's not going to be clear sailing. The Holy Spirit is not just going to like clear the path for you to where there is nothing for you to ever get hung up on unless you intentionally go after sin or something like that. That's not the way the Christian life is going to work. There are going to be things that naturally through the natural course of life arise that are going to be stumbling blocks to trip you up. Okay. Temptation is common in the Christian life. I think I've, I've mentioned before, you know, I've got, I've in, in counseling situations all through, uh, through ministry, you know, sometimes you'll get, talk to people and they'll just say, man, I ought to be past this, right? I, I, I just thought God would have, I would have been more mature at this point, or I would have gotten, you know, over this sin, or it wouldn't keep on stumbling, messing me up. And the answer is, man, sure, we can all hope for that. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, it could be the case, but also we should be realistic and say, man, temptations are bound to come. Stumbling blocks are bound to come. Uh, 1 Corinthians tells us that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So what does that mean? If you're experiencing something in your life in terms of temptation, you think, man, where's this thing coming from? It's probably the same kind of thing that other people have dealt with for all of time. Okay. You're probably not special. Um, your problems and your temptations are not unique. It's the same kind of stuff 
that has always been there and is bound to continue to be there. Okay. That's a realistic attitude towards sin in our lives. Um, it isn't going to be clear sailing. It isn't going to be rainbow and lollipops and, and, and sunshine every day. The devil, and we have to remember this, the devil is at war with your soul. Okay. We've got a couple people in here who have, you know, military backgrounds and stuff. If you have a battle in a certain place, and let's say you are even victorious, let's say you are decisively victorious in that battle in that area, and then you move on to another area, does that mean that that is never going to be an issue again, that the enemy is never going to attack there again, that there is not a weak point or something? No, of course not, right? In a war, you would say, just because we won, um, you know, I, I like Civil War history, um, there was a first battle of Manassas, and there was a second battle of Manassas, right? Why? Because just because you want a place at one time doesn't mean nothing will ever happen there again. I think I've, I've probably also shared the story when I was in seminary, uh, met a young man at church, and he said, man, I need some accountability. I need some mentorship or whatever. Would you like to do that with me and whatever? And I said, yeah, man, that'd be great. So the first time we got together, and I was like, well, cool, tell me about yourself. And he said, well, I'm this, this, and this. And something that you should probably know is that I have defeated lust and sexual sin in my life. I don't deal with that anymore. I'm beyond it. And I was like, cool, you're 19. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, you're, you're, and I, and I think I said something because like, you don't want to be like a jerk. And I just met this guy. And I didn't want to be discouraging, but I was like, Hmm, that would be uncommon. <laughs> um, if it's true, praise Jesus, but that would be uncommon if, if that was the case. And, and, and no joke about six months later, there was a pregnancy scare. Uh, and he came to me going, Ash, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, my whole life and this girl's family and I don't know. And we didn't think and it was never gonna. And, and I don't know, whatever. And I was like, man, it's interesting that you had this issue under control and yet it has come back with a vengeance now, right? Why did it do that? And again, he said to me, I don't know how this happened. And the answer is, I know how it happened because temptations are bound to come, right? The things that cause us to stumble are bound to show up. So be ready for them, okay? Be prepared for that fact. Being tempted to sin is one thing, okay? It's important. We should notice it. He says, you should expect it. It's coming. But the thrust of this passage is not so much on those who are being tempted as it is on those through whom the temptation is coming. The, the level of intensity ramps up a good bit in the second half of this, right? Because it says temptations are bound to come, but then what does he say? He says, but woe to anyone through whom they come, okay? You're going to deal with temptations, but woe to you if you are the one who is being the tempter, if you are the one through whom those temptations are coming, okay? So, so you could kind of say, man, committing sin is bad. It doesn't take you long reading the Bible to know that that's the viewpoint of the Bible. Sinning is not something that you should do. Um, but man, being the agent of someone else's temptation and sin, the Bible says, woe to you. All right. That word woe is significant. That's not something that just gets thrown around haphazardly. Um, we don't use that word often anymore, right? In fact, I think the only time we ever use woe is almost sarcastically. We'll kind of say, oh, woe is me or something like that, right? That's how we talk about it. We don't pronounce woe 
on people a whole lot anymore. But when you read the Bible, this is what you see. What woe means is grief, anguish, affliction, wretchedness, calamity, catastrophe, trouble, right? That's what woe is. When it is said of oneself, so sometimes you'll read the Bible and somebody will talk about um, woe for uh, um, the, the passage that we use is the, is the, is the layout of our ser- service every week. Isaiah chapter nine. Woe is me for I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He is pronouncing woe upon himself. And he's basically saying, man, I'm, I'm misfortunate, right? I am wretched. You should take pity on me because of the situation I am in. Okay. So sometimes we see woe being pronounced on oneself, essentially, um, it's essentially asking, have pity on me because I'm in a really bad situation right now. But more often than not, you see woe being pronounced on somebody. Okay. And when it is pronounced on somebody, it shifts a little bit. It's not, man, my life is really hard and have pity on me. When woe is pronounced is basically saying it is a declaration of impending judgment. Okay. So when, when Jesus says, Woe to anyone through whom temptation comes. It is not saying, I feel sorry for that guy. He's kind of a jerk, you know, going around tempting people to sin. You know, you should feel sorry for him. That's not the same kind of woe. The kind of woe he's talking about there is that person should be ready for impending judgment. Okay. And it gets, he doubles down on that very quickly. And the illustration is stark and and in your face. Verse two That man or woman who is the agent of bringing temptation, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck. Okay. Now, here's here's something interesting about that. I just came across. This is a fun fact. So obviously that idea of a millstone being tied around your neck and thrown into the sea is a proverbial now. It's something that you hear even outside the Bible sometimes and stuff like that. But what's interesting is this is the first occurrence of it in history. This is where it started. Nobody had said that before, okay? It was a new idea, um, or at least as far as we can tell. Nobody had ever made that comment before until until the Gospels, okay? And let's be let's be honest about it, man. It's a horrific image, okay? It's nightmarish. If you think about it for a second or two, it's the stuff that nightmares are made out of, okay? Um, think about this. We just talked about hell like two weeks ago, two passages ago. And you know what we said in the passage about hell? Oh, well, the guy's down there in agony, languishing. Sort of vague, right? Doesn't sound fun, but it sounds kind of, he didn't get into details. When we come to this passage, he says, you would be, the picture is much clearer and horrific to have something wrapped around your neck, pulling you down into the ocean, suffocating to death, lights disappearing, knowing there's no way to get free of this thing. And it is going to pull you to your slow and agonizing death. Okay. I don't mean to like, you know, I'm not trying to glamorize it. Right. But, but man, it's a, it's a, it's a scary passage. It's meant to be like, we can read past it and go, Oh yeah. So you die. I get it. No, you don't die. Like it's, there's, there's a, there's a a horrificness to this. And I think here's the deal too, man. The implication is not just the actuality of it. What I mean by that is this. He, it's not like he is just saying judgment is coming and you could die in another way. 
So it's not like you could take that passage and mix and change it out with another way of dying. You couldn't just say, woe to that person because you'll be torn apart by wild animals or woe to that person because you'll starve to death in the desert or woe to that person, whatever. There's something unique about having a millstone tied to your neck and thrown into the sea. And this is what at least I think is part of it. How does a millstone get out in the middle of the sea? Just in case you didn't know, you don't grind grain on a boat out in the middle of the sea, okay? I think there's an implication here that this is almost like an execution. It feels like a, you know who else does this? The mafia does this, right? The mafia puts your feet in cement and takes you out into the river or the bay and drops you off and sinks you down to the bottom, right? Um there's a, there's an aspect of this where it's not just sort of like, ah, well, you did some bad things and you're probably going to get what's coming to you. No, the answer is no judgment. Intentional and specific is coming for you. Woe to you who have led other people into temptation. So, so what's the whole kind of imagery that we're getting at? Well, A, we should take sin seriously. We should take sin very seriously, but particularly we should take leading other people into sin so much more seriously. The idea of not being a temptation to lead others into sin should carry so much more weight than even the desire in our own hearts not to sin because the consequences are so much more stark. So, so I guess one idea is, is, is there's a sense in which, and you, we'll see this again in a minute. Man, there's a lot of places where when we read the Bible, we see that there's a lot of mercy for sin, but we don't see as much mercy for those who lead other people into sin. That makes sense? For the sinner, there is grace, but, but the language gets a lot harsher. I'm not saying you can't be forgiven or if you've led somebody into sin. It's not what I'm saying, but I'm just saying, the, the language gets turned up a lot when we're talking about those who lead other people into sin. So the kind of sin and circumstances of leading someone into sin in this passage are ambiguous. We don't know exactly what the context he's talking about. Like, what situation are you talking about, uh, Jesus, when you say leading another person into sin? We don't know for sure, but let me let me give you some possibilities that I think are probably included in the idea, and there are things that we can find in other places in, in the scriptures. So one, in a general way, right, it's any circumstance in which someone is approving of or encouraging another person to do something as sinful, okay? And we can all think of a hundred different ways that that could have, um, uh, take place. But in a very general sense, if you ever noticed the fact, you probably have, that that there is safety in numbers when it comes to sin. You ever notice that? You ever notice how sin feels less bad when everybody else around you is doing it also? Um, to the extent, and again, maybe you've experienced this, is that people sometimes actually literally try to recruit you to be a part of the sinful activity that they are going to be a part of. I have had several points in my life where somebody has come to me and said, I have a way to be lucratively dishonest, right? I have a way to bend the rules, tweak the system, do this little thing that's going to get us a payday 
Um, you know, we're not going to get arrested. Nobody's going to prison or anything like that. But we're going to do this thing that is wrong and dishonest. Do you want in on it? Okay. Now, the interesting thing is you would think, why would you want to get other people in on it? Wouldn't it be better for you to take all the rewards from that dishonesty to where you could have reap all the benefits? Why are they trying to recruit help? Well, the answer is because because you feel better about sin when everybody's doing it. Right. You feel better when you have encouraged other people to do those things and be a part of it. It feels safer to sin when everybody around you is sinning, too. Or as I heard one person quip that no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. Right. If we're all doing this bad thing, then we always got caught up and they can't they can't um, they can't punish us all. Um, if everybody's cheating, then nobody's going to really get in trouble because we're all cheating, right? If we're all stealing, if we're all cutting corners, if we're all changing our time card, then nobody's going to get that mad because everybody does it. It's just the way things are. So maybe that's part of it. Any circumstance, and again, we could get into anything. We could talk about trying to tempt people in terms of uh, sexual sin or or any number of things that could could be out there. Okay, but so that's one side of it. But here's a more specific side that I think we see um, throughout uh, Jesus teachings and maybe specifically here as well is the idea of um, he's talking about someone who is leading others astray in terms of false teaching. All right. He's talking about leading, tempting other people to sin by deceiving them in terms of, of false teaching. So someone may lead another person by presenting something that is false as the truth, right? And now you get that person to start believing that thing and they start living according to that thing and, and they think it's okay. Um, but it's not okay, right? You have lied. You've been a false teacher in that person's life. And Jesus is warning and saying, woe to that person. Here's something interesting. John MacArthur, who's a pastor in California, makes the observation that most of the time when Jesus pronounces a woe, He's pronouncing it on false teachers, Pharisees, scribes, the high priestly class, right? He's pronouncing woes on the people who have the authority and the influence to lead others astray in their belief. He's not pronouncing woes necessarily, or certainly not as much on the common people and, you know, a prostitute and a tax collector and stuff like that. That's not who he's pronouncing the woe on. Not that what they're doing is good or moral or okay, but he doesn't pronounce woe on it. He saves the woe, the, the severity of that sin for those in authority who are leading people into false understanding. Okay. So, um, it's interesting, man. When you read Paul's, uh, the different places in Paul's letters, when Paul's talking about sin, he's like, mercy, grace, you know, repent, welcome them back. Um, and man, when he talks about false teachers, he says, damn those people to hell. Um, may they be cut off eternally. Um, may they be um, eternally separated from God. Like he doesn't, the language changes very quick and you see the gravity of what we're talking about just in the way he reacts to those things. For those who have messed up, there is grace. For those who are leading others to mess up, it's not that you can't be forgiven, but man, the consequences of that are so much greater. It's important for us to recognize then the 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 responsibility, the elevated level of responsibility and accountability that comes with teaching 
or being an example in any way. And so on one side you go, man, I realize why lots of times people don't want to step up into positions of, of leadership. Um, y'all probably don't get, remember the old Charles Barkley Nike commercials where he would say, I am not a role model. Um, do not, I'm a bad man. Do not do the things that I do. Um, and they'd show him, you know, dunking on people and elbowing people in the face and stuff like that. Right. He didn't want to be a role model. Why? Because he wanted to do things that shouldn't be emulated. And so I understand on one side where people would say, I don't want to be a leader because I recognize the extra responsibility that is there. And yet we are called to that. We are called to, um, walk in a way that is a model for other people to follow. So we need to recognize the, 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 what's at stake there. Okay. And then, and then a third way that I think he's talking about, about leading um, people astray. And that would be maybe particularly the leading astray of children. All right. And this is, this is why I would say that. Um, so it, in verse Two, obviously it says it would be better for that person to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than what? Than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Okay. Now here's one thing. When you read most commentators, they're going to, they're going to say that that little ones is probably not solely a reference to little children. That little ones is being used symbolically to represent anybody who is particularly new in the faith, immature, uh, in a, in a vulnerable position. And so it probably has a broader meaning than just children, but certainly children would be included in that, right? They would, they would be included in, in that situation. Um, so, so we can talk about it from, in terms of, of protecting children, we can talk about it from the extreme position, um, when it comes to areas of, of things like abuse in, in the church, so obviously abuse in the church by an individual or by somebody in leadership or a situation where it was just somebody not in leadership, but yet the church has tried to, um, tried to cover up or tried to, to address those things. I can tell you this pastorally. That is about the most detrimental thing that you can happen to your faith that there is. Okay. Um, if you want somebody to not believe in Jesus, the best way to accomplish that is for them to be abused in some way in the church. Okay. Um, that's a reality. Um, again, probably the reason why Jesus is talking so harshly um, about these things. Uh, obviously the Baptist church over the last few years has, has had to come to grips with the fact um, that in some cases there were people and individuals that, that were intentionally hiding abusers, right? People who were saying, oh, well, this guy messed up and I don't want him to lose his career. And so we're going to hide this thing and whatever. Obviously the Catholic church had a much more, you know, reported scandal of that, uh, in, in previous time. Um, even in places where we weren't hiding abusers in, in this, in, in Baptist circles, the nature of our church government, the nature of the way our association works and the convention works and all these things, it often made it easier for abusers to hide, right? So there's not a reporting system. There's not an easy way when somebody does something here for all churches to know about that, to protect people in the future. Um, I don't know about you, but when I read the millstone language, I go, yeah, that fits for somebody who's abused a child. I'm okay with that. Right. That's my gut reaction is to say, yeah, a millstone would probably be the least of your worries if it were up to a lot of people. 
and proactively from the non-extreme side, right? We can talk about the fact that we are called to proactively take precautions to eliminate the opportunities for children to be abused, um, to protect children from, from the possibility of future abuse. But here's the deal. I also think that's probably not the main thing that is in view here, right? That's not, it's, it's a legitimate implication of this passage, but it's not the main thing that's in view. Um, cause while protecting little ones from the predatory is, is important. I wonder if he's not talking a little more close to home. Uh, I think it's addressing again, the seriousness of raising up a child in the fear and admonition of the Lord, making sure that we are not leading our children astray when it comes to the important things of God. Um, I've been, as I've gone through this passage and Christy and I were kind of talking about it. I even said it to the kids the other day is I've been convicted as I've read this passage over the week about my negligence when it comes to training my children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Christy is awesome with that stuff. Christy is the one who is the doing the, the heavy lifting of teaching our children uh, the word of God and, and the things of God or whatever. Obviously I have a role in that, especially now that my kids are youth age and they're connecting with me in that way. But, but I, it, I was, it was, I was convicted over the course of the week of, of the ways that I have fallen short in those things. And I'll tell you what, and, and it's worse than that in all kinds of things. And I'm going to give you a little parent fail real quick. Okay. Big parent fail. Um, just stupid stuff. Okay. So James and I went to this nerd convention and you had to pay to get into it. And as we were approaching the line, I looked up at the sign and I thought James was going to be free to get into this thing. And I looked at the sign and it said five and below free, six and above $20. And I was like, forget all that. And so I looked at James and I said, Hey bud, It says that five and under is free. So we're just going to say you're five. You know what James said? James said, but dad, that would be to break the word of the Lord. (laughs) Okay. He didn't say, daddy, is that a lie? Daddy, is that, is that truthful? Like he didn't say that. He said, But dad, that would be to break the word of the Lord. Okay. Now you can imagine that in that moment, I went, somebody needs to come get this kid because there, he needs to be raised by somebody else. Okay. Right. He, somebody, somebody else should be his father at this point. And so I said, you know what? I was like, all right, this is, this is the moment to take my medicine. And I said, James, you're right. That would be wrong. We shouldn't lie about that. And if they're going to charge us 20 bucks, they're going to charge us 20 bucks. So here's the deal. Now you might hear that story and say, Ash, go easy on yourself, right? No big deal. It's not that big a deal, right? Or you may be saying, man, why do we let this joker preach to us every week, right? Like, um, I don't know which attitude that you have. You may have done something like that in in your own life at some point. Um, but here is is something that, that the the idea that popped into my head is that I was willing to teach my son that it was okay to break God's word as long as you save 20 bucks. 
That was basically what I came to, right? That as long as it wasn't that big a deal, we weren't murdering anybody, right? We weren't ending the world. But, bud, it's okay to lie. You know, break one of the Ten Commandments. As long as you can save a little bit of money. Um, and then as I came to this passage this week, I thought, would I be better off with a millstone tied around my neck, pulled to the bottom of the sea, than to teach my son that it was okay to lie? Just a little bit. And you might go, Ash, I don't think he's talking to you. And you know what? Maybe he's not. But I think he is a little bit. It's interesting that when we look to the other places in Scripture where this language about the millstone being tied around their neck, at least in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, both cases, they're followed with a specific passage. And it is, in both cases, the passage that says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled and lame with two hands or two feet to be thrown than... than it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell, hell of fire. Okay? That is not a passage to encourage you to go home and self-mutilate. Okay? Um, man, if you're trying to get rid of lust and you're like, you keep on looking with lust with my eye, you'll discover real quickly that you don't need eyes to lust. And so you can pluck those eyes out and you're still going to have those problems. Okay. As some famous dudes from history will tell you in stories that are probably too graphic for me to tell you from the pulpit. Um, but what it is about is this, you should deal with sin seriously and drastically. Every time Jesus talks about having millstone tied around your neck and going to the bottom of the sea, he then also usually says, cut your hand off, poke your eye out. You should take sin seriously. You should take the consequences of sin seriously. You should be taking drastic measures to amputate that sin from your life, to mortify that sin, to put it to death in your life. And man, how much more so if it is not just your own personal sin, but a way that you have been leading others in sin. And so he ends with this phrase that I think is almost funny. It's just funny the way it sounds. First half of verse three, he says, so watch yourself. It sounds too contemporary. I don't know. There's something about it that just sounds a little. He says, so watch yourself. Okay. Look to your own life. You know what? Look to the times when you try to cheat somebody out of $15. And watch yourself. Ask yourself, what is the long-term effect of this? What is the, um, am I leading others into sin through this activity? Another way to translate that would be to take heed. Pay attention to these things. Don't just look at those things and say, that's a little thing, no big deal. Forget about it and move on to the next thing. No, he says, no, stop. Pay attention. Watch this stuff. Take heed. Because temptation is going to come. Those temptations are going to present themselves all through your faith journey. But woe to the person through whom they come.
Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, repentance is a gift of your spirit. Father, we should recognize that the recognition of our sin, the conviction of our sin, um, God, the desire to turn from that sins are graces that are only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, for those who are believers and who are indwelt by the spirit, that should be a constant process where we are pausing, we are watching ourselves, we are taking heed to the reality of the way that we are living our lives um, and listening for the voice of the Spirit in our lives convicting us. God, we believe that even for those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, that that is part of the process of the Spirit calling those to Jesus Christ, that there are ways, even if they're, even if they're Different in some ways, but there are ways that the Spirit is moving among even those who are who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Um, that they hear that still small voice in their head that says, "Turn from sin, turn to Jesus Christ in faith." <laughs> Father, we thank you for the ministry of the Spirit in our lives um, to draw us back to yourself. When we are foolish, when we are selfish, when we are irresponsible, God, even with the incredible responsibility of, of the care and nurture and admonition of, of children and young believers, even our own children, God, when we are foolish and, um, and when we make dumb decisions, God, that you would convict us of those things, that you would rec- make us recognize uh, the great danger that we put our, our lives and souls in, that you would pull us away from that into truth, into righteousness, um, into repentance and that we would, um, God live in righteousness that as those stumbling blocks come, God, that we would be able to acknowledge them and bypass them and move forward. Um, not only not stumbling on them ourselves, but also leading others not to stumble. God, let us that, let that be the ministry of our lives, um, that we would not lead others into temptation, but that we would be, agents of leading people from temptation and calling them to your son, Jesus Christ. Helps to do these things. We thank you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. Yeah.
Amen. Good to see you. Uh, I'm, I'm looking out and I'm thinking, man, it's it's been a few weeks since we've had this many people here and everybody's well and, and back together and stuff like that. So it's encouraging to see. Um, I love it when we can all worship together and, and I'm glad when when we're all here together. And so I um, hope you have a great week. Um, look forward to seeing you next week as we continue talking about, I think, forgiveness um, is the next um, thing on, on the docket for or what we find in Luke 17. And so um, look forward to talking about that. Here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.